I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. With so many families staying home right now, that means there's also more opportunities for families to eat meals together. Family therapist Ann Fischel says only about 30% of families regularly eat dinner together, despite family mealtime being hugely beneficial for kids. She's the executive director of the Family Dinner Project, a nonprofit that helps families find their way back to the dinner table with fun, easy conversations and meals. Before the coronavirus outbreak, I spoke to Anne and asked her how we wound up being a country full of families that just don't eat together very often. I mean, the numbers certainly have gone down over the last 30 to 40 years, although it's interesting. In affluent families, the numbers have gone up, Hmm. and in low-income families, they've gone down, which I think speaks to the extra stressors of having to work extra jobs, having unpredictable schedules, not having as much access to healthy food. I think this accounts for why low-income families struggle more with it. But whether families are high income or low income or live in the Midwest or on either coast, the obstacles to family dinner are pretty much the same all over. We hear that families are too busy. It's too much work to make dinner night after night. Once they make it, their kids or their partners are too picky. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? There's too much conflict at the table. Families are distracted by technology. Teenagers seem not to want to eat with their parents, although the research really flies in the face of that. Teenagers rank family dinner pretty high on their list of Mm -hmm. things they like to do, and 80% of teenagers say that family dinner is the time of the day they're most likely to talk to their parents. Wow. So tell me a little bit more about what are some of the benefits of having dinner together and yes. why it's important? Yes. I'm a family therapist, and I sort of half joke that I could be out of business <laughs> if more families had regular family dinners because <laughs> so many of the things that I try to do in family therapy actually get accomplished by regular dinners. So there have been more than 20 years of dozens of studies mm-hmm. that document that family dinners are great for the body, the physical health, the brains and academic performance, and the spirit or the mental health. And in, in terms of nutrition, cardiovascular health is better in teens. There's lower fat and sugar and salt in home-cooked meals, even if you don't try that hard. There's more fruit and fiber and vegetables and protein in home-cooked meals and lower calories. And kids who grow up having family dinners when they're on their own tend to eat more healthily and to have lower rates of obesity. And then the mental health benefits are just incredible. Regular family dinners are associated with lower rates of depression and anxiety and substance abuse and eating disorders and tobacco use and early teenage pregnancy and higher rates of resilience and higher self-esteem. And the Family Dinner Project has worked with, I 
think I read one million families on this issue. Yes, we've had close to two million unique visitors on our website. We have tons of free online resources of recipes that take less than 30 minutes and games to play at the table that promote conversation and conversation starters. And then we've worked with thousands of families through our community programs. We host community dinners at schools and after-school programs and military bases and homeless shelters and firehouses. And we bring together a lot of families and we we have a great dinner together. We cook together, we eat, we play games, we have conversation. And then the kids will go off with a team member to make dessert for everybody. And one of us will meet with the parents and we'll ask them, what are they doing well when it comes to making dinner happen? And what are their obstacles? And then we'll ask the parents to brainstorm their own solutions to these common problems. And over 10 years, we've kind of collected some of those great workarounds, those real-life hacks, and collected them in this new book that we wrote called Eat, Laugh, Talk, the Family Dinner Playbook. And it's really kind of a celebration of the incredible innovation that families demonstrate when they try to make family dinner happen. And it's organized around the, the main obstacles If I could just give you an example to show you how innovative families can be. There's a father in the book, a divorced father, who has his three sons every weekend. And he very much would like to have dinner with them over the weekend. And they're really not that interested. So they scarf down their dinner and off they go to their screens. So one night, he said to himself, if you can't beat them, join them. And he said, boys, come to the kitchen humor me, we're going to make ratatouille over pasta. They did that. And then he had them watch the movie ratatouille while they ate the dinner. And they would discuss how their ratatouille compared to the movie version. Mm. And then sometimes he would turn off the sound and have them guess what the actors were saying on the screen. And sometimes he would have them be critics and, you know, stop the movie and have them critique the different scenes. And so he used technology to engage them around the table. And that kick-started their practice of, of having weekend dinners with one another. And he didn't have to show a movie each time. Right. I mean, that's not even something I had even thought about. Like, you have so many different family structures, kids moving from maybe one home to a different home yes. or a different parent's home and just very different situations. Yes, you have three generational families, yep. single parents. You could have a family dinner with friends or college kids in a dorm who regularly have dinner with one another. I think of that as a kind of family dinner. Really runs the gamut. Yes. It's not what you traditionally would think of exactly. as a family. And it doesn't even have to be dinner. Some families find it so much easier to have breakfast together or weekend brunches or even a late night snack where you push away from work and meet in the kitchen for cheese and crackers and hot chocolate. Um, yeah. That would count too. I mean, there, if you think of it, there's 16 opportunities for a family to eat together in a week seven breakfasts, seven dinners, and two weekend lunches. And any of those would count 
towards the, the benefits. Right. So if you know you're going to have a day where dinner is going to be impossible on a weekend together, maybe you can try to do a breakfast or some other time. Sure. I imagine doing this every day would be the dream. But is there a goal? Yeah, I think it's really up to each individual family to find their way. The research has focused on five meals a week as being kind of the the tipping point for a lot of these benefits. But I'm not sure that they've carefully calibrated it. I mean, some researchers have looked to see, do you get the same benefits with two meals a week? And some of the academic benefits seem to really count on five meals or more. And Mm. the goal is to have at least one good enough (laughs) meal together a week. And if a family can make that happen, often more will follow. So the idea that has to be five or more can become an obstacle it can be a kind of a, a tyranny of, of perfection. Mm. And I think we really want to get away from that in, in all regards. You know, it doesn't have to be a perfect number. It doesn't have to be perfectly cooked. It doesn't have to be perfect manners. The secret sauce of dinner is really not about the food at all. The secret sauce is, is it enjoyable? Do kids feel that when they speak, somebody is wants to listen to what they have to say? Is there not much criticism or anger or conflict at the table. These are the things that I think families really should focus on. I want to talk more about that. It's not so much the act of eating together as much as it is about that connection and making it quality time together, which I know myself as a parent is hard to do, especially with a young child. (laughs) There are developmental challenges when the kids are young and then, again, when they're teenagers. But I think when they're young, you want to set kind of realistic expectations. And some kids, if you can get them to sit for five or ten minutes, you know, I think that's something you can build on as the years go on. You know, sometimes if parents put a little bit more thought into – how they're going to engage their kids at the table and less less focus on the food, that that can make for a, oh, a more yeah. enjoyable dinner. You know, maybe picking a game that you want to play that will really delight a child and help a child talk more fully about their day than just asking them, what did you do in school or how was your day? But instead, maybe everybody goes around the table and says a, a rose, a thorn, and a bud. You know, a rose is something funny or positive. A thorn is something difficult or challenging. And a bud is something you hope will happen tomorrow. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'll have to try that tonight because I definitely am a parent guilty of saying – how was your day and getting nothing because my child's so young. Yes. There are 52 weeks of Mm -hmm. recipes and games to play at the table and conversation starters for for all different ages. And I think it can be fun as a parent just to go through and kind of pick and choose what you think might work at your table with your family. Can we talk about the conversation with teenagers or when they get a little bit Mm. older. I would assume, and I'm sure a lot of parents would assume their teenagers want nothing to do with them at the dinner table. And then it turns out that's not really true. It's not true. No, when kids are given the choice or when they're, you know, asked in a survey, would you rather eat with your parents than by yourself? 
in front of a screen or with your peers, 80% choose their families. You know, it's because teens know that it's the most reliable time of the day to have time with their parents, and adolescents still need that and want that. In a funny way, adolescents have the most to gain from family dinner when you think of the reduction in high-risk teen behavior that comes with regular family dinner. So I think, you know, it's a kind of a question of accommodating, making some changes, engaging teenagers more in choosing the menu or maybe cooking one meal a week or cooking a course or finding out a country that they're interested in and picking some menus from or some dishes from that country and making that or asking a teenager to uh, make a playlist of favorite songs to play during dinner and talking about that and maybe not talking about things that you know really upset your teenage kid, like maybe not talking about that D they got on their math quiz or how messy their room is or the missed curfew over the weekend, you know, maybe waiting for those conversations till everyone's eaten and maybe having it one-on-one instead of at the dinner table. Wait, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was there's academic benefits to eating together. And I don't know that people would necessarily equate eating together as having some sort of benefit Yes, these are very dramatic benefits. With young kids, preschoolers, the organic language that happens at the dinner table turns out to have 10 times as many rare or uncommon words sort of embedded in those conversations as parents talk about you know, being late because they hit a lot of traffic and they were so upset, they wanted to tear their hair out, whatever. There are a lot of um, words that kids don't pick up in their picture books or on the playground. And kids who have a larger vocabulary learn to read earlier and more easily. This was a study um, done at the Harvard Ed School, actually a kind of a longitudinal literacy study done by Snow and Beals. And then moving along the age continuum, Kids who eat regular family dinners in elementary school and in high school get better grades. And the effect is stronger than even doing homework or doing art or sports. Have you looked at all at the college student population? They're sort of transient. Sometimes they move home during, Uh you know, for a month or two. Yes. The dinner table is in some ways the, the microcosm of what's going on in the family in general. So it's the place where parents first feel maybe the emptiness of the empty nest as they Mm. night after night sit at the same kitchen table and they have two empty seats where their children would be seated. And I think there's something like that that happens when young adult kids come home and maybe they weren't expected. Maybe the parents, the single parent or two parents, they're sitting in different seats now that it's just the two of them. And they notice they have to rearrange their seating Mm. to accommodate a young adult. Or maybe they've gotten in the habit of eating much later than they used to. Or maybe the college student has become a vegetarian Mm -hmm. and wants to change the way the parents eat. So you see some of these developmental frictions or changes or adaptations at the dinner table. And as a family therapist, it's kind of a fruitful 
place to work out some of the changes. You know, who's going to accommodate and how's that going to happen? Are you going to keep eating at 9 o'clock the way you've been doing since your college kid has been away? Or are you going to reach some understanding? So it's just renegotiating. Yeah. I think often college kids come back with some new ideas about food that they may want to introduce their families to. And I think one of the kind of earmarks of families who do the best making the transition from teenage to young adulthood happens when parents are really welcome the adventures and journeys that their kids take outside the family. And those journeys might be in exploring new cuisines, new ways of eating. And so it's sort of an opportunity, I think, for parents to say, teach us, make something you've learned, or let us adapt to things that are important to you now that you've had a new experience in college. I hear a little bit about parents, they want to get their kid to bed earlier. Uh Uh-huh. And both parents are not home Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so then it becomes this what time to eat issue. Yeah, it's like which ritual is going to get privileged? Is it going to be the bedtime ritual or the dinnertime ritual? A couple things come to mind. One is a family dinner doesn't have to be everybody. You know, family dinner is one parent and, and a child. It could still be a family dinner. And then if there's another parent and he or she comes home late, then the child at least still had a family dinner. But maybe on the nights when the whole family can't eat together, there's more focus on breakfast. A few years ago, Cheerios came to us and said, we know you have the family dinner project, but how about the family breakfast project? (laughs) And we (laughs) created games and food and conversation starters for breakfast, building it around a seven-minute breakfast because that's how long it is when you press your snooze alarm um, before it goes off again. And so we thought... Even busy families could fit in a seven-minute breakfast. So they're conversation starters and games that sort of tilt towards anticipating the day rather than reflecting back on it. I'm still a little bit taken aback by that statistic you mentioned earlier that only 30 or 40 percent have dinner dinner together. And... While that's not the worst number you right. could ever hear. It's, and that's regular. That's, yeah. There are more families who have it one time a week or twice a week. It's not that the other 60% are never having family right. dinner. It's still surprising mm-hmm. to hear that. What would you say if there was one thing for families to think about doing? How do you start? I think I would start with making a, a commitment to having it once a week. And then I would ask a family, what would you like to work on? If you were to make one small change, where would it be? Would it be in trying a new food? Would it be having more fun at the table? Would it be finding out more what goes on in each other's days? Would it be talking about the news or talking about who we are as a family and what our identity is and what we value as a family. So I would ask a family kind of if you were to make one small shift, small addition to family dinner, in what realm would you want to do it? Do you find that if you 
approach this too big, thinking let's do this every night. It's just it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I think that can be overwhelming and can make families just want to give up on it. Some families, nobody likes to cook. Um, <laughs> I re- remember a family like that who nobody liked to cook, and but they wanted to have dinner together, and so they decided to have one dinner out a week. And I made them a conversation jar. It was a a jar stuffed with whimsical, thought-provoking, funny questions on little slips of paper. You can download them on our website because they wanted to have a sustained conversation at the restaurant for 45 minutes. And so they brought the conversation jar to the (laughs) restaurant just – said, forget about cooking at home. Maybe later on we'll tackle that. But for now, we just want to have a good conversation with the three kids and the two parents. And that's what this is all really about. That, yeah, it really is. There's you know, it's just so few opportunities each day for families to be together and to connect and relax and have a good time. And get rid of your phones. And get well, get rid of your phone. That's one option that many families take to have a technology free time of the day. Other families I know take a slightly different stance where you can bring a phone if you want to share something with mm-hmm. the family. You know, if a photo you took or a funny text, that's okay. Or sometimes families say, we'll just use our phones to resolve factual debates. <laughs> You know, to fish sleep, who won the World Series in 1990, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it sounds like there really is no wrong way to do this other than just not trying to do this at all. Yes. It's a very flexible format, the family dinner. We're not trying to make this a nostalgia project Mm -hmm. or kind of bring back a, a fantasy from the 1950s with a spotless kitchen and one parent, usually the mother, home, slow mm-hmm. roasting a pot roast. So the idea really is to try to involve as many people as possible to make the work a little bit lighter and to focus more on what happens around the table than the food. I mean, everyone loves food too, but... <laughs> Anne Fischel is the executive director and co-founder of The Family Dinner Project. She is also a family therapist, clinical psychologist, and associate clinical professor of psychology at the Harvard Medical School. She is director of the Family and Couples Therapy Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. The Family Dinner Project just recently released the Eat, Laugh, Talk, the Family Dinner Playbook. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening and please subscribe. 